Welcome to One on One. This Legislative Services Agency audio program consists of interviews conducted by a member of the agency. Each brief conversational interview features an expert answering questions concerning a topic of interest within an Iowa State agency. On Wednesday, November 19, 2014, Glenn Dickinson, Director of the Legislative Services Agency, interviewed Joe Royce, Legal Counsel for the Administrative Rules Review Committee, or ARRC. Joe is retiring after serving on the committee since 1976. Joe gives an overview of the role of the ARRC within state government, changes he's witnessed over the years, and recounts his involvements and interactions. I'm Glenn Dickinson with the Legislative Services Agency. I'm here today with Joe Royce of the Legislative Services Agency. Joe's been with the legislature for about 36 years. It'll be 30, I'm in my 38th year. 38th right year right now. And during that time, he's basically worked with the Administrative Rules Committee. Correct. And so maybe we just start off with a general question. Tell us what the Administrative Rules Committee is and a little bit of its history. Okay, to start off with, the reason I'm here for 38 years is from the minute I started working with the Rules Review Committee, I fell in love with what they did. I fell in love with who they are. I fell in love with the process. From day one to the day I leave in a month or so, It'll be the most fun I've ever had in my life. This, In fact, working for the legislature itself has been the most exciting thing I've ever done. That said, I want to talk a little bit about what the Rules Review Committee was and is. Fascinatingly enough, the Rules Committee is indeed an artifact. It's an artifact of how committees used to be created in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. It's the last committee created under that sort of a semi-independent type of entity that, yes, was part of the legislature, but sort of divorced it from it. The Rules Review Committee was created in 1964, at least that's when the meeting first occurred, 50 years ago this year. The idea was, for quite a number of years, we had something called administrative rules. Back in the 1920s and 30s, legislation no longer had enough detail to actually administer the programs that the state was now handling. So this idea that we should delegate power to government agencies, these experts in government agencies, to create administrative rules to add the detail that the statute lacked. Essentially, rules are the same thing as a statute. The difference is we call them rules to differentiate. And, of course, they're created by bureaucrats, if you want to use that term, as opposed to legislators. By the 1950s and 60s, the legislatures around the country, and in Iowa particularly, were understanding we've given all this power away, but what are we doing to oversee them? So in 1964, the Legislative Rules Review Committee was created and like I said, remnants of that first creation exist to this very day. The Legislative Committee was joint, bipartisan, three members from the House, three members from the Senate. It's ten now, but that structure remains intact. The committee was created of legislators, but it was created independent, really, of the General Assembly itself. First of all, the committee was given the authority to select its own chair, a remnant that exists to this very day. Secondly, it was empowered to meet on a monthly basis to review rules either selectively proposed or in effect, and again by law required to meet on the second Tuesday of every month. Again, another fragment that remains to this day. The idea being, and this was before we had computers, you have to understand communication was difficult. Even publishing an agenda was a tricky thing. So the idea being, you may not know what's on this committee's agenda because of the publication delays and communication lags we had, but you know what date they were going to meet. So if force comes to worse, you can show up on the second Tuesday of the month, and you would know that this committee's 
meeting. So anyway, the committee was created in 1964 as the legislature's watchdog over the legislative process. The idea being that its whole purpose was to ensure that legislative intent was being followed. To a great extent, the committee sees itself in that light to this very day. It had the power to approve rules, but that was sort of meaningless. The Attorney General's office, and this is where I'm straying away from the facts, this is more supposition on my part than anything else, but I believe there was a lot of dubious thinking about that time about what the powers of this committee could or should be based on the separation of powers, whether they should have any authority over what the executive branch did. So the committee's powers were advisory. They could approve administrative rules, but that approval was unnecessary. A comical thing, it shows you how formal government was in the middle of the last century, was you have a committee of legislators that meets on a monthly basis. It was staffed by the judicial branch. The Iowa Code editor at that time, Wayne Vopel, was by law designated the ex officio secretary to that committee, which also meant that he staffed it. Again, that's a remnant that remains to this very day, because again, in the statute, the administrative code editor now is the ex officio secretary of the committee. It's a, sort of an honorary position that requires a huge amount of work, but they seem to enjoy it a good bit. So anyway, you have this committee in 1964, staffed by the Supreme Court, which I still find hilarious, working to review administrative rules. At some point, I want to chat a little bit about Wayne Fappell, because he's a man who does not deserve to be forgotten. But anyway, the committee putzes along for about 10 years, doing this advisory rules review sort of thing, meeting on a monthly basis. Chuck Grassley was one of the first chairs of the Rules Review Committee. Oddly enough, I met Senator Grassley in the course of my work, and while I tried to find it for this meeting, I'm going to see if I can uncover a letter he sent to me last year. I, on behalf of the committee, had contacted his office about a federal regulation, and one of his staffers had responded, was what the answer was, and Chuck pinned a personal note on the bottom of it. He said, well, in my day, rulemaking certainly didn't take this long, and they cited <laughs> Chuck Grassley. So even he remembered his days as chair of the Rules Review Committee. Uh -huh. In 1975, something momentous happened. Clearly, the, this rulemaking process was getting out of control. What we had, the Iowa Departmental Rules, was a hardbound volume, just like the Code of Iowa. Hardbound, issued every two years, but rulemaking continued to go on. Those hardbound rules were outdated the minute that book was actually published, and the rules volume was increasing. The Administrative Procedures Act was created in 1975 to essentially create an imitation of the legislative process. Well, it did four things. Required agencies to give notice of what they intended to do. We call it now the Iowa Administrative Bulletin. That was developed a little later. Second, give people an opportunity to comment on what the agency proposed to do. That was unheard of. The idea that the public could actually participate in this rulemaking process, have something to say in it, it was revolutionary. Now, that comes with the Federal Act of 1947, but nonetheless, for Iowa, that's quite a change. Thirdly, it provided a limited opportunity for legislative review. I'll get to that in just a second. And then fourthly, we published the final process in this new thing called the Administrative Code, updated every two weeks. And remember how significant that is, because it was before computers. There were no computers. This was all done by Wayne Fappell and his staff by hand. Anyway, that third aspect, legislative review, was a big deal because Arthur Bonfield in Iowa City, still alive, still active, was the author of the Iowa Administrative Procedures Act, based on other states, but it was his masterpiece. He did not include legislative review as part of that process. He believed that to be unconstitutional. He believed it to be unnecessary. The legislature 
simply recreated the Legislative Rules Review Committee as the Administrative Rules Review Committee, three members from the House, three members from the Senate, and inserted it right into the process. In those days, there were a large number of legislators who took an interest in government strictly from a procedural point of view. What's good government? That sort of idea. One of the major ones, Jerry Huser's father. Um, Skinner. And Skinner was one of the main architects of the Administrative Procedures Act and indeed added the Rules Review Committee, gave the committee its first power. That power was to object to an administrative rule. Unheard of. Now, oddly enough, Arthur Bonfield subscribed to that. He said, okay, and his 1975 Law Review article mentions the objection. I mean, frankly, he got put in there at the legislature's insistence. It's not because he wanted it. But he extolled the virtues of this idea that the committee could opine that a rule was unlawful and it reversed the burden of proof and if the agency wanted to continue that rule it would have to stand the worry that if ever got challenged in court that rule could be overturned and they'd pay court costs and attorney's fees. By the way, as an aside, in all these decades it's gone to the Supreme Court twice. One time the court said, okay, we're reversing the burden of proof like the committee says, oh agency, you haven't met the burden of proof your rule was struck down. And in the other case, about 10 years later, they said, okay, agency, we're reversing the burden of proof. You prove that this rule is valid. Then, okay, you've done that. Rule is upheld. So it has a mixed bag, but it does what it's intended to do. It requires the agency to be put on its proof. 1975, then, the committee largely unchanged, except for the new name and the power, and it goes into effect. Another little interesting thing, I remember the legislature, the state of Iowa as a whole, we're a frugal people. Wayne Falpell is the code editor. Why is the Supreme Court doing this? Because Wayne's there and he's cheap. Doesn't cost anything. He would bring his own tape recorder to the meetings. It was the size of, well, it was the size of your printer. I remember it. <laughs> it was a real, real, and he brought it himself. Good for him. Save a few bucks. And to get us some additional staffing, David Charles was the assistant secretary of the Senate. Dave, you're up. You're going to staff this committee. Because he was a lawyer. You're going to assist Wayne. So... They dragooned the Secretary of the Senate to provide legal services while Wayne continued to staff the committee. The interesting thing about that, that created a relationship between the committee and the Senate that lasted for years and years and years. Benefited me greatly. Essentially what they did is the Senate took upon itself as being responsible for the committee and its care and upkeep. Room 24 at that time was pretty much dedicated to the committee whenever it wanted it. Supplies were drawn from Senate stores and the Senate just sort of manage the day-to-day -day needs of the committee. Anyway, as time passed, Wayne ceded the authority to be secretary to a young woman, his assistant, Phyllis Berry, who went on to be the administrative code editor, and so she took over those duties. And David Charles got tired of it. He said, first of all, I don't want to be doing this. And I was hired. The reason for that was when the committee was created, they actually had the power to hire their own staff. At the time, I graduated from law school, and I was working in the business office of the YMCA. And this is yeah. in 1977? That would have been 1976. 1976. Graduated from law school in 75, worked at the Y. And a large number of members of the YMCA were legislators, which is commonplace. It was a thing to do after session, come down, work out. So I got to know quite a number of them, and one of them was E. Kevin Kelly, legislator from Sioux City, and he said, Joe, would you be interested in a job at the legislature? And I had never thought of it. Well, yeah, that does sound kind of, okay, come and interview. So I did, and that's how it was done in those days. If you knew somebody and interviewed, you got the job. It worked for me. I found out 
later on, and incidentally, you can hear get that story from, of all people, the last surviving committee member for that year is Laverne Schroeder, who still comes from time to time. I got the job because, remember, Kevin Kelly was a Republican in a committee that was run by Democrats. Manette Doder wanted a black woman. Burl Preeb, whom you may remember, would not have been too warm to that idea at all. So all Kevin had to do was say, you know, even though he's a Republican, I've got this young guy graduating from law school. Why don't we hire him? That was the end of that. So I got hired by the Rules Review Committee. and So you were directly employed by the Administrative Review yes, Committee? Yes, I was directly employed by them. And at that time, they had the authority to do that. Once or twice since then, the committee would hire a lawyer on an hourly basis for some specific project. But that was pretty much the end of it. And there was no need. I mean, the code editor's office, to this day, the administrative code office now, provides the lion's share of the committee staffing. I mean, all secretarial work was done there. Managing time was done there. Putting the agenda together, which prior to computers was a huge undertaking, took several days. All that support. The committee, which seemed to have a tiny staff of one person, actually had a very large staff of about 14 people who spent much of their time dedicated to publishing the rules and getting the Rules Committee monthly meeting on the road. Okay, along with those same times, the committee started working more and more and more and becoming more active. I don't know exactly how to explain how this one change occurred. I'll talk about the powers in a moment. But the committee was obsolete by 1975. I'll, I'm just going to say that. A legislative committee, watchdog over the process. What's the point of that? It's old-fashioned. It accomplishes very little except to centralize power in a handful of legislators. Again, it's so hard to explain. But rather quickly, they started evolving into a public meeting. And it was just a brilliant thing. Based on that groundwork that they meet on the second Tuesday of every month and the, their power to demand that an agency send someone there, they started, the meetings are open to the public, the law required that, specifically required it, they started saying, okay, anybody in the room has anything to say, now's the time to say it. And it was a brilliant move that served well now for 30 years because suddenly there's a legislative committee in which the standing committees in the legislature, you're certainly welcome to attend, but you sit there and you keep your mouth shut. You're, you're not part of this committee. Staff doesn't even sit at the table. in the, the Rules Committee operated precisely like a small town meeting. Anybody who's in that audience is entitled to make a presentation on the committee. It doesn't matter if it's, well, it has to be on point, but it doesn't matter how polished you are, whether you're represented by attorney or not. Whether your point is even valid. No matter who you are, if you want to get up and say something to that committee, you can do that. And that's how it works to this day. So suddenly the committee became a really useful tool for everybody. Anybody concerned with a rule had a chance to meet with six legislators before that rule went into effect. And the agency representative, because remember in rulemaking the agency holds the final card. A rule is valid, a rule is lawful as long as there's statutory authority, goes through the rulemaking process and is reasonable, whatever that means. The point being, the agency can adopt whatever rule it damn well chooses. Still can. But now they have some political accountability because they have to explain themselves in this public group, in front of this public body, and then listen to members of the public who don't care for that rule. It's, it's just a great concept. So about the same time, the committee started thinking it needed more power. So its powers became more and more diverse. The rules process moves very quickly. Every two weeks, rules are proposed. Every two weeks, rules are adopted. It moves quickly, and it needs to. But sometimes these reviews take time. The committee is a political body, not a judicial one. It doesn't have the ability to simply 
ponder things for a long period of time. The rules process, like the Mississippi, keeps rolling on. First power, 1977, additional power, the 70-day delay, which is they can simply delay a rule for 70 days look for further study. Somewhat controversial because they're going, now wait a minute, you've got this legislative committee that can actually stop an action of the executive branch. Separation of powers doctrine says specifically in the state of Iowa, powers are apportioned between the executive, legislative, and judicial, and one branch entrusted with one power may not exercise the power of another. So that brings up an issue that has puzzled us now for 30 years and has never been litigated and will not be litigated in my time. After that, it's somebody else's problem. Are the committee's powers constitutional? Okay, so we now have the 70-day delay, which then sets things in motion for 1978 when a real change occurred. When the rules committee, the rules process, really started entering the 20th, ready for the 21st century. The Code of Iowa was published by the judicial branch, as was the administrative rules. And in 1978, it was determined, you know, the Legislative Services Bureau at that time, they really ought to be doing this. And so well, the court was agreeable. They, they didn't want to do it, really. So the Code Office was moved hat in hand over to the Legislative Branch of Government. And at the same time, there was some readjustments to the rules process. The idea being rules would no longer be filed in the Secretary of State's office where they'd been filed for 50 years. Well, these are executive branch rules. Let's file them in the governor's office. Governor A was amenable to that, and part of the negotiation was, well, we need someone to oversee this process. So the position of the administrative rules coordinator was created in the governor's office, basically to act as the governor's rules advisor and also to manage the filing of rules. Now that's all done electronically. It's amazing. And so, just to step in just quickly, at this period, 1978, had Wayne Fapal retired? No, he had not. A sad thing it was, because Wayne did feel rather badly about that, but now he's a legislative employee and he's, he's doing his job. But he, he had stepped away from the Rules Review Committee. By that time, Wayne was, I believe he might have been 79. He was not a young man, had no intention of retiring. So he'd stepped away from the rules process. Phyllis was the ex officio secretary. I was the legal staff. This new position, the rules coordinator, was created. And anyway, one of the first ones created, Bob Ray appointed a young protege by the name of Bryce Oakley, who'd been a legislator for four years. As an aside, hated by Republicans. Bryce was and remains a traditional Republican, but he was not arch-conservative. He was one of the votes that created collective bargaining where state employees, government employees could unionize if they wanted. He was one of the Republican votes that switched over and did that. To tell you how some of the reaction to that, you may remember Bill Harbour, who was an old-time legislator and former Speaker of the House, and I remember Bill referring to Bryce as Judas, which gives you a feeling of the thought amongst the old mossbacks of the Republican Party. The Bachelor from Lake Mills. The Bachelor from Lake Mills. I have wonderful stories about Bill, because he was a bachelor, but he had a lady friend. So anyway, Bryce is hired. By the way, the first thing Governor Branstead did when he took office was... <laughs> but anyway, Bryce comes and he introduces himself to the Rules Review Committee. Again, without any statutory change at all, the committee had this brilliant idea. said, why don't you attend these committee meetings with us? And so the tradition became, which continues to this day with no statute behind it, the rules coordinator sits as an ex officio non-voting member of the committee. 
And what a thing that was, because now you've got three members of the House, three members of the Senate. To get on that committee, you had to have quite a bit of personal juice in those days. So they were significant members. Manette Noterer, Burl Preeb, Kevin Kelly, up-and-comers in the legislative branch, Bill Monroe in the House, up-and-comers. But now you had the governor's personal attorney, the rules coordinator, sitting out on those meetings as well. Sometimes Bryce would stand up for his agencies and advise caution to what the committee was doing or advise against it. Sometimes he would support the committee wholeheartedly. But now, this meeting really took on a new life because when you came to the Rules Review Committee, you were meeting with three members of the House, three members of the Senate, a high-ranking agency representative, and a representative from the governor's office all at the same time. And again, still, if you were in the audience, no docketing, by the way, you could just show up. It'd be nice if you called in in advance, but it wasn't necessary. That's one of the keys to our agenda problem to this day. You could get up and you'd be speaking to all these powerful people about this particular rule. So now the committee really has something going for it. It's a completely open forum, kind of freewheeling, but that's a good thing. It's not closed off to lawyers or professional lobbyists, although they make good use of it. And now the committee has a panoply of powers to impact rulemaking, but it got one more. And this would have been in, I think it was 1982, but anyway, it was an amendment to the Constitution. Some of the old Mossbacky Republicans thought, you know, this still needs to go farther, and so the concept started being explored that maybe we ought to have a legislative veto. This idea that the House and the Senate ought to be able to veto administrative rules on their own. That was probably the last time that there was a pure political debate, not in terms of Republicans or Democrat, but a pure political debate as to what the role of government was and who should exercise what powers. Governor... I think Ray was still the governor, but I'm no longer sure. I'm going to have to double-check to see when that amendment went in. The Attorney General, Tom Miller, opposed it on constitutional grounds, very reasonable. A number of legislators did as well, arguing that this was not a constitutional process. And it was a great debate. My business was to advise the committee and shut up. I have no interest in public policy. It's none of my business. But it's the only time I ever got involved in something, because I was invited to talk about it on the radio with Tom Miller, the point-counterpoint thing. So I presented the views as to why legislative veto was a good thing and how it was going to work, and Tom very professionally presented his views. It was public radio, which means 12 people and their dog heard it, but nonetheless it was great fun to just debate what the constitutional underpinnings of this was. Now the proponents of the amendment were really smart. Even with that, it was controversial, but they knew that if it was going to pass, it had to be something that was not radical. We have a legislative veto that is very carefully crafted to discourage its use. If you're going to do legislative veto, if you're going to change the Constitution, why not have a one-house veto? Why not have a committee veto? Why not have a veto by a majority of those present voting? But in Iowa, that wasn't going to work. So we have veto by joint resolution, which is to say 26 votes in the Senate, 51 votes in the House, and then it becomes law, the rule is vetoed, without the governor's signature. The point being, though, all the safeguards of the legislative process, tossed in the hopper, subcommittee, goes to committee, goes to subcommittee, comes out of subcommittee, comes to the standing committee, goes to the floor, comes to a vote, and then repeats the entire process in the other house. All those safeguards remained intact. The point being, legislative veto had lots of safeguards to make sure that the legislature did not go hog wild. The genesis of this was the federal United States Supreme Court case 
which ruled a legislative veto unconstitutional on the federal level. And it sent shockwaves, because Congress for decades had vetoed administrative rules using all kinds of little mechanisms to get that job done, but now it was unconstitutional. So that was the genesis. The Iowa legislature was concerned that we needed to deal with that. And it was Shadow versus the Immigration and Naturalization Service. Let me take just a minute to go on a sideline on that, because the Shadow case was just the very definition of how Congress had gotten completely and remains out of control. The idea is legislative veto, that the legislature can somehow step in and reverse a legislative action. Shada was a refugee from Uganda. Now, you might remember what Uganda was like in the 1970s and 80s. He's an Indian who fled Idi Amin. So he's now in the United States, and for whatever reason, there was some problem. Who knows what? But anyway, as the law provided, the Attorney General put Shada on a special list. Yes, he is here in the United States lawfully, because he would be in danger for going back. For whatever reason, that was controversial. And the Congress had the authority to, this was not a rules issue. It said they could reverse the decision of the Attorney General's office. So we're not talking about a matter of policy, a rule. We're talking about some poor schlub by the name of Shara, who was going to be sent back to Uganda based on congressional action. The very worst excess of congressional power, which is to say the power to not make policy, but to infect one specific individual. The legislature has no authority to act on an individual basis. It acts on a policy-making basis. Worse than that, and Congress, of course, to its detriment, keeps detailed records of what it does, it was clear that nobody knew what they were voting on. The person who sponsored the amendment said, and this proposal implements what the Attorney General wishes to do. In fact, it reversed what the Attorney General wanted. Anyway, and the court cited all that. The decision was obvious long before they read it, because it was such a grotesque abuse of power, both on the constitutional level and just on the plain political level, that that action could not stand. So Shada strikes down legislative vetoes, sets shockwaves throughout the nations, because a number of states had that. We did not. So our idea was, okay, let's try a constitutional amendment. And the constitutional amendment rather handily passed. To the legislature's credit, I think it passed because there was a calm reason debate. There was a significant minority of people who didn't think it was a good idea and voted against it. But it was a conservative legislative veto, making it very difficult for the legislature to actually exercise. And it exists to this day. It's used, I would say on the average, it occurs less than once a year that it actually passes. Remember, out of the four or five hundred new rules or rule changes that go through a year, less than one is not a bad track record. It does happen. Uh, it's happened on some pretty significant issues, but on a very rare basis. So now we have the Rules Committee kind of fully in the 20th century. You have legislative veto, which gives the legislature an independent authority to veto administrative rules. About at the same time, and I have to go back to 1978 for a second, the committee got the power to delay an administrative rules, not just for 70 days, but to the next legislative session, 45 days into the next session for further study. That became a much bigger deal. People who were willing to tolerate the 70-day delay, they understood, okay, it's a way of buying a little extra time to talk about this. No one's, But then they saw this was just one step removed from a legislative veto. The committee could delay a rule for a long period of time, 45 days into the session. Later on, it was determined that that 45 days was never going to work because nothing moves through the legislature in 45 days. So it was expanded to a session delay. 
That was, and to this day remains, a controversial thing. The committee doesn't use it very much, but unlike the objection, which requires the committee to have a reason for objecting, the rule is arbitrary, capricious, unreasonable, beyond the authority of the agency, a standard that the committee must follow. The committee could delay a rule for any reason it wants to, which means that it could be a political reason. And I'm not saying that in a pejorative sort of way, it's just politics is part of government, politics is part of policy making. To me, it's a valid exercise of that power as long as you explain what you're doing. But nonetheless, a lot of people became very concerned with the committee's power over that. By that time, Governor Ray had retired from the office. Governor Branston, of course, brings another view. He was a legislator himself. He was lieutenant governor. He had a legislative role. He was, if not great friends with the Rules Review Committee, he was more sympathetic to what he did. He was personal friends with Burl Preeb, who was the Ayatollah. He burled through his personal magnetism and, uh, well, just his bullying ways, managed to keep the chair on and off for 16, 17 years. So anyway, there was a kind of amiable relationship between the committee and the governor's office that never quite went away. The first thing Governor Branstead did was fire Bryce. The interesting thing about Governor Branstead, this is off the subject, but it's just fascinating. You hear a lot of people talking about women's rights, and, and especially in the 70s and 80s, and equality of women. Well, Branstead would never talk like that because he's a conservative man. That's not one of his issues. But he doesn't talk the talk, but he walks the walk. He has, to this day, a remarkable record of appointing women to hugely important positions. He just would do that. And one of the first was Catherine Graff. She became the next Administrative Rules Coordinator, and she, of course, she and the committee got along quite well. First of all, Rules Coordinators didn't turn over very quickly, so they'd last three, four, five, six years. So that became a long-term position. And so the comfort level between the committee and the governor's office became actually more and more. The governor's office became less concerned about the committee going wild, using its powers in unreasonable ways. The committee became a little more comfortable working with the governor's office because you had these wonderful series of rules coordinators who were just really smart, really amiable. It was a marriage made in heaven. We kind of worked together. Yes, there were times when the rules coordinator would oppose what the committee did, but more often than not, they tried to work in concert. And that's sort of how it's been to this day. Times have changed a bit. It used to be the Rules Committee appointment was a lifetime appointment. I actually saw that as a really good thing, because yes, these people were grasping for power, and they wanted that, but that allowed members, the committee was expanded to 10, by the way, so more people could participate, and that was a good thing. But they'd serve long-term, so you'd, get to, you'd become, A, familiar with the rulemaking process, B, become familiar with the governor's office and its role in that, and then some C, over time, you got a working knowledge of all these issues that came before the Rules Committee time and time again, environmental regulations, hunting regulations, Medicaid regulations. You can't just pick that stuff up. It takes years. And get a feeling for the people who come from the government agencies. Some of them, career bureaucrats, this guy is solid gold. Whatever he says, we can trust. So their rules get just basically a cursory view. Sometimes it's a major issue, and so it'll get looked in more detail, but you trust this guy. This guy over here we've never met before, so his rules get a more careful going. There was a certain camaraderie by having long-term membership and then long-term bureaucrats. People would work together, and then public members of the audience. The one anecdote, because it happened just yesterday, and it is 
some of that still remains to this day that people become more comfortable with the committee and feel feel good meeting with it. And uh, Phil Wise, who was a former vice chair of the committee, now works over at the Department of Education, was he's now their rules coordinator, and he works together with a young lawyer. And yesterday they were presenting rules to the rules committee. It's and remember, it's the holiday season. Everybody is in a good mood. So they're doing their rules. And one issue comes up that Phil can't answer. And he's very formal at committee meetings. He's very good at that sort of thing, like he's on trial. And he says, I'm afraid I can't answer that question. So I need to transfer this over to our legal counsel, who will answer your question for you. And Nicole comes up and takes her seat. And she turns to Phil and said, thank you for putting this to me without giving me any notice at all. <laughs> and everybody just cracked up. Even though, the point being, the committee does not operate like a tribunal. It is not a courtroom. It's unconsciously designed to welcome people to the table and just say what you got to say. No trouble at all. Anyway, as, as years have passed and members have died and moved on, the one thing that's not worked as well, especially in the House, they tend to churn members. It's looked at as a bit of a prize that needs to be passed around. The Senate, to this day, if you're on that committee, you tend to be on that committee for as long as you want to be there. The House churns its members, which has actually increased the Senate's role in that committee because the House members, by the time you learn your way around what that committee does, you can be taken off of it. And I think that's to their detriment. It takes at least four years just to get to know all the players, just to get to know the issues that are coming up time and time again, and the House doesn't build up that expertise that the Senate wisely keeps. So you did mention that Burl Pree was chair on and off for 16, 17 years. How does the chairmanship work now? What happened is, and it's the Burl Preeb rule, Burl Preeb was a master at balancing Republicans and Democrats. He was a Demo lifetime Democrat. Remember, he was a New Dealer. I remember him saying on the floor of the Senate when they named the Hoover Building, they got up there and he spoke against it. He said, I went to work in 1932. I was making 50 cents a day and there was Hoover's telling me that prosperity was just around the corner. And then he said, I never cared for the man. And he slammed his mic down and sat down. Anyway, so that tells you a little bit about who Burl Pree was. Larger than life, he could use his political influence to keep the rules committee year in, year out. And those days, the term was for four years or for however long you were in the majority. And in fact, when the House took over the legislature in 1978, Burl had enough clout that his term didn't expire until April 30th of that year. The Republicans left him alone. He was the last Democratic chair in a Republican legislature. But anyway, he had the clout that whenever the chairmanship was Democratic, it would be his. In 1986, Don Avidson was getting pretty sick of that. And don't quote me on the year, because I'm not quite sure when it occurred. So he goes, okay, we're going to fix old Burl. He expanded it to 10 members against Burl's wishes, but he got that job done because a lot of people wanted on that committee. We're just going to get a House member. Burl was so good. Even with that, he managed to persuade enough of the new members to appoint him chair. Well, first of all, he had all the Senate, Republican and Democrat alike, vote for him. And then he got all the House Republicans. He remained chair. He became the long-serving chair. Janet Metcalf got on that committee, and then we had a split house. Senate was one way, House the other. And Janet says, it's my turn to be chair. You've been chair long enough. Burl wasn't having any of that. And so the offshoot was, then we start having co-chairs. So that was the first chink. 
Now what's happened, finally people are saying, this has gone on long enough. And I mean, it, this bigger, long after Burl left, because there were still some hard feelings. The advantage of having Burl in for that length of time helped because that cemented the relationship between the committee and the Senate, which always, to this very day, generously provides a room to make sure the Rules Committee has priority on Senate space for getting a room. It happens to this day. But anyway, the point being, this has got to change. So I believe it was two years ago, there was a bill that now it says, okay, the chairmanship of the Rules Committee is going to rotate every year between the House and the Senate. And that's how it works now. That's how it should have worked 30 years ago, but that wasn't going to happen. And it works out just fine. Whatever house is not the chair is the vice chair. The nice thing about that is the powers of the chair have not changed, which is to say very little. Brill had a lot of power on that committee by the force of his personality, by the force of his brutality, if you want to use the word. And I say that with love, because I, I was brokenhearted when Brill died, but in any way that happens. But now the chair of that committee approves the agenda, does control decorum in the meetings, but the meeting takes its own. If you want to get up and speak on a subject, you can. If a legislator, committee member wants to speak, they can. Yes, the chair recognizes you, but the chair doesn't really have any power not to recognize you. The power of the chair is to review and approve the agenda, to determine what rules go on the agenda and what goes off. That still does not remain a problem because regardless of who the chair is, and currently it's Wally Horn is the chair, Don Pettengill the vice chair, both of them want as many rules on the agenda as possible. In fact, when they approve the final agenda, they may well add rules. So, well, there may be a future issue in terms of a chair who wants to very carefully control what that agenda is. Tradition has always dictated that we always stuff as many rules on there as we can. And Merle, he had a very good reason for it. He said, you know, even if it's not a controversial rule, we want to make sure that they know that we're looking at them. Even rules that 70% of those rules are non-controversial. Who cares? Oftentimes, we have rules that do nothing more than change addresses or update federal sites. Who cares? Nonetheless, they may well go on that agenda for at least one review just to show the agency, well, explain to us what you're doing. We want to know that. So the, the real power of the chair is indeed controlling the agenda, but even Burl never tried to control the agenda. In fact, his control was put as much on as you can. We do have selector reviews, and those could be a bit more political, because it's not impossible that someone would say, I have a political reason for wanting to review a particular rule. That does require the chair's approval. That has never been a problem. The nice thing about having a 10-member committee, and especially one that, where the members serve for longer periods of time, there's lines of communication, there's friendships that evolve and maintain, and so there's a bit of a pressure to kind of go along to accede to your friend's request. You may not care for it politically, but okay, it's something he wants to talk about, so we'll talk about it. And indeed, there's no reason not to talk about it, because when a rule goes into effect, the committee has essentially lost most of its power. It can look at it, it can refer it to the legislature for further review, but the committee's powers are all tied to the effective date of the rule, as it should be. It's sort of the first gap, if you will, the first look at the rules process. Once the rule's in effect, it's in effect, and only the legislature can veto it. I should note also the governor can veto an administrative rule, and lo and behold, it comes up, he has. Just two years ago, he vetoed a rule dealing with steel shot after the legislature failed to do so. The governor can veto a rule within 70 days of its effective date. The idea being the rule goes into effect, the governor has two months to make up his mind. 
The governor doesn't do it very often because can you imagine being the agency administrator whose rule gets vetoed? Can you imagine what that's going to do to your career? So the way it really happens is the governor, basically the governor now pre-approves all rules. Thanks to the automation of the rulemaking process, thanks to computerization, it's all done electronically now. And if the governor's office says, no, you're not going to be pushing the red button on that, we're not going to accept it, that's the end of it. The governor wanted to make a political point, and it dealt with steel shot, and it was all done for the right reason. You have people who think that lead shot is terribly poisonous to wildlife and needs to be eliminated. You have hunters who maintain that steel shot damages your shotgun, it's hard to use, so you do have a fight. We have basically banned lead shot in duck hunting, but it remains for land creatures. And DNR did propose a rule to ban lead shot in land creatures. And to his credit, I think the governor really did say, okay, let's do a rulemaking on this. Let us go through the process. And it was a given that the Rules Committee was going to delay that rule. It was just too big a deal. And again, this is a case where we're not talking about whether the rule is lawful. This is a political decision. The rule's perfectly lawful. Nobody's going to argue that it's not. They have that authority. But is it politically acceptable? The committee was not going to make that decision itself, so they did agree. They did impose a delay on the rule. And it was so nicely done. Because oftentimes those things can be awful and they can be bitter. And it was a big meeting with much public participation. The young woman from DNR was sent over, the young attorney, one of their young attorneys, to explain the rule. And while I told her in advance, I'm not sure she actually believed that this rule is going to be delayed. It's going to happen. She was warned of that, but she may not have believed it. I still tip my hat to this guy. The director of the agency sat right behind her so that she knew she was not alone in front of that committee. He sat back and supported his staff. Anyway, the committee delays it. The legislature fails to overturn that rule. So immediately, after session adjourned, the governor then vetoed it. I thought it was a fascinating view of how the process works. The idea being get lots of public participation, send it to politically accountable authorities, let them make a decision, and that's how it worked. The legislature declined to. The governor ultimately decided to act and vetoed the lead shot portion. And that's how we now hunt doves in Iowa using anything that you've got. By the way, this is really true. On that day when they approved the dove hunting rule and then delayed the lead shot portion of it, when I went home that day, there was a dead morning dove on my front stoop. That is a true story. So that's the Rules Review Committee in a nutshell.